Hello, my name's Debbie Evans, and I am delighted today to be joined again, once again, by Dr. Chris Flowers and our great friend, Cheryl Granger. And we're going to be talking about the title of this interview, Report 89. Now, for those of you that aren't aware of Dr. Chris Flowers, please go back and look on our website for a bunch of flowers by Pfizer, because Dr. Chris Flowers is the lead medical researcher overlooking the Pfizer analysis documents, but he has a whole wealth of experience. And so I'm very, very glad to welcome you back because you've been on your travels, Chris, and, and we want to hear all about it. So, Chris, could you give us a little brief introduction into how you became the lead researcher for the Pfizer analysis documents in collaboration with the Daily Clout and the War Room. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me back again and just having the opportunity to share some of the pretty amazing um, findings that we've um, been finding as we've gone through the Pfizer documents. It never ceases to amaze us, you know, two years in, from all these documents, as Pfizer released more and more information, we get we really do find some very important things at the end of the data drop that they were forced to produce when the FDA wanted to restrict access for 75 years. But me, I'm just um, a retired um, radiologist. I used to work in um, in breast cancer screening in the UK. And then after 20 years service in the national health, I was recruited to work in academic radiology in the University of California, San Francisco, and later also at UCLA, where I was involved in the breast cancer research studies and doing clinical practice, um, both in the US and in the UK. So this has been quite fun having a foot in both continents. Um, but after retirement, I um, got involved with the uh, Pfizer documents because of the fact that I've been involved in clinical trials throughout my life. So basically 40 years of clinical trial experience. And I thought, well, I could at least offer my services to help analyze some of the data that most people may not understand as it's coming out about the Pfizer clinical trial. And so I volunteered, um, I wrote to Naomi Wolf and offered my services. And basically, since then, I've been the uh, medical lead uh, of 3,250 plus uh, volunteers who have been looking through the Pfizer documents over these last two years. Um, our teams are many, many and varied medical professionals, both academics, uh, statisticians, clinical trial specialists, forensic scientists, um, nurses, pharmacists, all sorts of people with great backgrounds, which allow us to basically do a citizen's investigation. It's been a crowdsourced citizen investigation, which is the only way to get through the sheer numbers of documents that have been released uh, for Pfizer. And now the upcoming Moderna documents, they're even greater. <laughs> they're talking of over a million documents that we're going to have to go through. I think <laughs> they never really thought we'd get to the bottom of the Pfizer stuff. But, you know, we've worked long and hard over two years and we've published so many reports now. We've also had our very first um, peer-reviewed scientific uh, publication, which was a forensic analysis of the Pfizer clinical trial, in particular, 
the deaths in the Pfizer clinical trial with some amazing findings. So that's what Report 89 is all about. It's about our um, peer-reviewed paper and some of the reactions to it. So grateful to, for everything that you and let's remember the 3,500 volunteers because we should let our audience know that all of you do this pro bono. All of you do it for nothing in your in your own time and you're doing it for all the right reasons for humanity. And we're also really fortunate that with all the work that you've been doing um, with uh, the clout and with the war room, We've had our very own situation room, if you like, created here in the UK. And heading that up is our very own Cheryl Granger. Now, Cheryl's been liaising with you, Chris, a lot. Um, and she's joining us today um, to help steer us through Report 89. So, Cheryl, let me welcome you on screen. And would you like to give us a brief introduction for people that may not have caught up with you yet? Yeah, thanks, Debbie. Um, hi, Chris. I'm uh, based uh, within the pharmaceutical industry. I've had a, a background in the pharmaceutical industry, which is why I understood what should have been done and what wasn't being done. Um, and then I ended up um, trying to get hold of the AstraZeneca data. Um, and that led me to contact Naomi Wolf, and then I was given contact to Amy Kelly because I suddenly panicked. If I was successful and I had all these pages of data, what was I going to uh, do with them? Um, so Amy um, was very um, instrumental in, in encouraging me, um, although I haven't been successful, hopefully, as yet. Um, and I then took a very great interest in what was happening with, first of all, the Pfizer documentation and then the um, Moderna document documentation, which has started to come and hopefully um, will continue to come. Um, so I have tried to um, keep abreast of all the reports. I've now... Um, been involved in bringing these reports in the not too distant future um, onto UK column um, in summary so that links can be made back to uh, daily clout and the more detailed information. Um, but it's it's quite a, a task to read through the 90 plus reports as I have done and realise all what they're showing what hadn't been done, which should have been done. And in particular with this report 89, because um, there was improper delays um, in the vaccination deaths and them being reported, um, which meant that they were misstating the effectiveness of the, um, the Pfizer vaccines. And that information um, was then uh, used to influence the licensing um, decisions. So that's where um, Chris wanted to talk because of this new uh, peer-reviewed paper that's been done around this information. So I wonder if you could fill us in on the, um, the report itself and then what actually um, the peer review actually stated. And then we'll come on to perhaps talk about how that's now going to be, be used. Well, they've done 90 reports now, this team. And this is specific to report 89. But one point that I want to just make um, before I throw to you, Chris, to explain to us what is report 89 in very, very simple English. Um, if vaccines were working, excess deaths wouldn't exist. In fact, they'd be going down. And I think that's relevant probably to what you're about to say, 
about Report 89. Um, so take us through, Chris, and I'll let Cheryl drive us through as well with her questions on how significant and important Report 89 is. Sure. Well, be before I do that, um, I'd just like to say one or two things about uh, your interview with Ed Dowd, because um, it's only just shown, um, talking about the UK ONS data specifically that I was involved with is the turbo cancers. And uh, our teams have been working very closely um, with Ed Dowd's team. Um, they've also commented on uh, this paper subject to this report. And subsequently to that, um, I've been uh, testifying uh, to the National Citizens Inquiry in Canada. And also I've done three testimonies separately to uh, the Brazilian parliament, both uh, nationally and regionally, and in debate with the Minister of Health in Brazil, as they're trying to mandate um, vaccination for infants. And as you know, there is really no benefit for um, and only harms uh, when it comes to vaccinating uh, babies against COVID, never mind all the other, other aspects to it. And that goes back to the severe adverse events that have been found both in the US and all the way across the world with the European uh, periodic safety update reviews. Um, they have also confirmed exactly what we found in the original Pfizer documents in the 5.3.6 post-marketing experience. But that's that's just a, a quick quick summary of that. But Report 89 is really, um, it's talking about a, our very first peer-reviewed paper on a forensic analysis of the Pfizer clinical trial. Now, the Pfizer clinical trial, as you were aware, took place fairly early on in the pandemic between October and early December of 2020. Um, that's when Operation Warp Speed was going on and they were talking about developing a vaccine and having it ready um, before the presidential election in November 2020. Um, and what are the things they um, actually said in the report when they uh, presented the data to the committees that were going to uh, basically green light the emergency use authorization that would, be, would start the um, process of um, giving vaccines to uh, the whole population of the world. Their summary, and from their summary slide, they were talking about uh, six deaths. Um, and these are, uh, they're, all, they're all young people as well that Ed Dowd uh, mentioned in his uh, recent interview with you. Um, and there were, uh, two people in the vaccine arm who got uh, who died, and there were four in the placebo arm. So placebo arm just means people who've not had the test uh, uh, chem chemical. Now the problem is that um, when this um, this report was made, they did not actually either read the data or it was physically hidden. We don't know for sure. Um, we haven't seen all of the FOIA'd emails yet around this time. We are still researching it. But when we looked at the Pfizer 
data that came out in the case report forms, um, we double checked with um, whistleblower and uh, and uh, 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 Brooke Jackson from Texas, uh, and she confirmed as she was originally employed by Ventavia during the clinical trial and got sacked um, for reporting the fraudulent activities to the FDA. Um, she confirms that when these reports were made, um, and we've got the dates, the date stamp, and when they were imported into the case report forms, which are the sort of standard um, forms that have to be filled in in a, in a research a trial, it turns out that there were actually four deaths. Pfizer knew and the FDA knew there were four deaths in the vaccine arm and four deaths in the placebo arm. So there was no benefit from, you know, preventing you from dying by taking this vaccine. And yet they presented it at the meeting as two people who were vaccinated died and four people who did not have the vaccine died. Therefore, the vaccine is reduces your risk of death by 50%, when in fact it doesn't do anything of the sort. And as a result of this, um, we we presented all of our data. Um, we've linked to the files, and other other groups have actually gone through the data that we've shown for them, and they confirmed that what we're uh, finding uh, is substantiated. They also agree with with our our analysis. So the question is arising from this whole thing, which is why we call it a bombshell revelation uh, in Report Eighty Nine is that they actually knew when before they did the EUA and yet they gave the EUA and people started getting vaccinated by this new modified mRNA genetic uh, treatment um, and yet it didn't save you from dying. It didn't really have much effect on hospitalization, etc. Could you explain what an EUA is, Chris, to put it in context? This is a biological product. So it was they were going for um, authorization for a biological license. And to do, uh, to do this very, very quickly, instead of doing the normal uh, procedure, which takes uh, quite a long time, takes <laughs> many years normally to get something uh, approved for, for use, they used a technique called emergency use authorization. And all this means is that despite everything, um, you are allowed to use this on this group of um, people. And, and they extended this EUA to younger and younger age groups up down to the age of six months. Okay, they reduced the dose slightly, but even so, um, this carried on. And despite everything, we are still under the EUA in the United States. We don't have any of the commercially approved vaccines, which you have in the UK and in Europe, and that's called Comirnaty. That was the one that was approved. But it is actually substantially different to the uh, EUA-approved uh, drug not in the not in the sense of the mRNA content, the dose of the mRNA that's given, 
nor the contaminants, nor the SV40 snake venom um, fragments that are seen, the DNA plasmid fragments of contamination that you probably discussed with Headley, Headley Reese um, uh, about. Um, but it was all that all that was different was the one of the so-called buffers um, that was was used, and so they allowed that for the rest of the world, but they not they've not allowed that for the U.S., which is very very strange. We've never had an answer as to why that should be, apart from the fact that it's like an emergency power, and it protects um, uh, the a big pharma and people doing the trials from uh, any, anything. The emergency is gone. So how are they? And it's been declared in the States that it's gone, I believe. So how come they're still using the EUA? We keep asking that question, just like you, and there is no answer. They, they, no, one's justifi- no one's justifying it either. You know, you'd expect um, them to turn around and say, well, and give the reasons why they want to keep this as an EUA. Why are we not using Comirnaty anyway? Um, there has to be a reason for this. But there, we, haven't, we haven't actually seen a reason anywhere documented. And we don't see it brought up by anyone. And really, it's our, con- our Congress folk <laughs> need to be doing that. That's why they have their inquiries. They're the only people with any power in the U.S., to ask these real questions and get answers. We don't get them. Just going to rewind on that very slightly um, because I heard the two words snake venom that you said there. And I've seen a lot of reports from different people with regards to the ingredients of the vaccine and what's in it and what isn't in it. Has it now been proven that there is evidence of snake venom in this injection? Yes, um, several labs have um, found that both in Germany and in the US, uh, Kevin McKernan, uh, for example, is one of the big ones in New York. And also there's the um, um, Dr. Buckholt in, in South Carolina. Um, uh, he also um, has uh, found, found that. But in, in fact, if you go back to the Pfizer documentation, um, they actually showed the plasmid DNA ring um, Back in the original approval documents, but what they what they didn't do, and you can see it in retrospect, how clever they were. They only labelled half of the ring, so that was the mRNA and one or two other little bits. But they didn't mention what all those other things were, which were the plasmid DNA fragments, including the SV40 promoter. Uh, gene, which is not a good thing to have, um, uh, because that, in fact, has been proven uh, in the past on its own uh, to cause cancer, promote cancer. And we know that these genetic fragments, because they get injected into the cell thanks to the delivery uh, process, which is the lipid nanoparticles, it gets right into proximity with a dividing nucleus, which is where DNA can be incorporated. And that's the last thing you want any of these DNA fragments to get into. Because from my point of view, from the uh, cancer point of view, I'm very concerned about genes being switched off or turned on. So we know we've got tumor suppressor genes 
that can have their switch turned off so they're no longer suppressing growth, um, which is probably the reason for some of the turbo cancers being so, so aggressive. You know, then they're, they're not um, <laughs> things that, okay, take, take two or three years necessarily, but we're seeing changes within weeks sometimes or even days, uh, the size of tumors and the change of grade from grade one, which is a low grade, to grade three, which is a high grade. And often they've uh, metastasized as well, as well. It seems to highlight, as you go through all the reports, the questions that aren't there, the questions that weren't asked by the regulators. So your FDA, MHRA, EMA, all of the regulators globally did not query anything. So like you said, with the structure, they were they were it wasn't labelled properly. They weren't actually um, giving all the information. And that would normally have meant questions went back and forth till we got answers that the regulators were happy with. But if you don't ask questions, you just accept what is there. And that has been one of the things that's mainly let us down. Um, so if we go back to the um, peer review, um, can you tell us more about what is being done with that information now? Um, you've said about um, being at the National Citizens' Inquiry, which I believe is finished now. Um, what is now going to be the result of all that inquiry, for example? Well, we've been trying to share it far and wide. And uh, since really um, Report 89, uh, that's when uh, Ed Dowd's team were very interested and uh, got involved. We also started working with Children's Health Defence to, to push this out. And we're sharing the information on as many forums as we possibly can, including um, the platform X, formerly known as Twitter. Um, we've been trolling um, some people like Paul Offit, who um, is one of the people who was on one of the committees, who was uh, what we call a vaxophile. Um, they believe in vaccines come what may, regardless of uh, any safety features that are, are missing. Um, and so we we uh, suggested he might like to look at the Pfizer documents and uh, look for, for for his own point of view, look at the serious adverse events, and and see if he wouldn't like to reconsider what he's actually recommending. And of course, he's one of the uh, few uh, doctors on the panel who've actually thought about or is bec becoming a little bit more wary about being so dogmatic. <laughs> about the effect of the vaccine, uh, the positive aspects of the vaccine, and is beginning to question. But is, uh, it's, it's not absolutely brilliant because at the end of the day, as soon as he gets off the committee and starts talking with other people, he reverts back to his normal stance. Now, there, there are other doctors, interestingly. We've been sending uh, our papers to other other. Um, guys who, who seem to be questioning um, whether the vaccine should still be given to people. And um, I think we do believe that people's eyes are being opened. Um, we, we share this data that shows that the premise by which the, this so-called vaccine was offered to people and, and basically passed out to the rest of the world was based on a lie. That's what the data at the EUA, when it was um, uh, accepted, showed. It was based on a lie. It did not uh, save you from dying, did not save you from hospitalization. We know that the effectiveness, even if it was fairly effective right at the start, 
dropped off significantly, very, very quickly, <clears throat> and also um, was not very effective as soon as Delta came and then Omicron completely wiped out any reason for giving anything uh, based on a generic vaccine. There was absolutely no need to do anything. You know, it's just a common cold. Um, and so as a result, you know, people are beginning to ask questions and we're actually have, finding that we're even having conversations on planes when we're flying and we happen to be reading uh, Naomi Wolf's uh, uh, recent book, which is uh, out in paperback and is about the last three years of her life and how she came to um, uh, leading the uh, Pfizer document investigations the things she went through, how she'd had to change her mind over many, <laughs> her liberal indoctrination that she had for the rest of her life. Suddenly, her eyes were open, she was red-pilled, and and uh, basically, uh, things have never looked back as a result. And um, she helps uh, pass on the information that we find in our reports uh, in a, a, a very persuasive manner, shall we say. You tend to refer to this as uh, a black letter um, evidence of fraud. So can you explain that black letter? Black letter fraud is it's like how much evidence do you need in a court of law to convict someone of fraud? And the fact that um, the data that was published at the time of the EUA was different to what was presented at the meeting, we have both the uh, documents from the meeting, uh, the slides from the meeting, the transcript of the meeting, and the actual Pfizer documents. Um, we, we've got we've got um, uh, screenshots of all of those. There is there is actual evidence that this was fraudulent. You can't give an EUA based on false information, and as a result. About a week later, the paper in the New England Journal of Medicine came out by Paula Cattell. And so we're, in, at the moment, we're going through our attorneys and looking at, um, uh, we're writing to the FDA, we're writing to the uh, intelligence community as well as um, New England Journal of Medicine, that this is fraud going on and they need to investigate why this has occurred it's all been funded by the u.s taxpayer in the first instance and therefore this is exactly the sort of crime back in the day before uh, the doj was weaponized this is the sort of thing that the fbi would go be all over it's like it's like going to tony soprano this is like this is like the mafia this is the mob you know Big Pharma have effectively become the mob who are um, manipulating data to get their emergency use authorization. And of course, through that, they also made billions. Uh, it's now coming back to bite them. I think we've got the, uh, the, the evidence that has, has come out has made people so much more vaccine hesitant that we've been following the the uh, financial reporting of Pfizer and Moderna and watching the stock dropping, 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 dropping. So their COVID bump has gone. 
but we must never allow this to occur. But we've got to go back to the FDA. We have to stop this EUA. And really, the whole issue of the mRNA lipid nanoparticle platform has to be investigated fully before any of these new um, shots are given to anybody. Don't forget RSV. Don't forget the new flu vaccine is all mRNA lipid nanoparticle. And they're going to give it to us via nasal spray so we don't have to have an injection. How about that? And it, it dramatically alters your genome. We have to be careful with injecting DNA into the cell adjacent to the nucleus, especially in younger folk where cells are dividing very quickly and there's much more uh, an increased likelihood of incorporation of fake, or not fake DNA, but you know, pollute, pollutant DNA, contaminant DNA fragments into your own genome. Not good. And this has been one of my main concerns because we've, I mean, Debbie and I have kept saying, you know, do not take any more because we've got a cumulative effect of the amount of uh, mRNA. And then uh, it was Melissa Moore, who's uh, the chief scientific officer of uh, Moderna, did a TED talk and started talking about 175 mRNA products that were in clinical trial and, and something like 54 were just waiting to go into clinical trial. So that's about 230 more products with mRNA in them before this product can ever have shown that it's it's safe in anybody. Um, so it's something that needs to be stopped and then obviously um, it has to be assessed properly um, and hopefully no more will be used up till that um, that point. Um, so you've got 250 lawyers still, have you, working within um, the analysis? Yes, that is correct. The, um, they're uh, mainly giving advice and doing pro bono. Um, um, basically, they're informing the state's attorney generals because those are the ones who can actually uh, get things done, get lawsuits done. Um, they can uh, stew the federal government, something that little folk can't do. It's incredibly costly to try and do lawsuits in the US, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, so they, uh, we, we have little contact with them. We have uh, one person who represents the attorneys group um, who gives us advice uh, to help us in our thought process from the legal standpoint and can answer any legal questions. And we have Brooke Jackson coming in, giving us updates and um, helping us go through how Pfizer actually did their clinical trials uh, and, and how the forms were filled in, all of these basic things that we now have the data for because they came out in the very last uh, Pfizer data document dump. So we're, we're doing pretty good. Um, but as you say, Cheryl, I'm very concerned about the mRNA, but we shouldn't even call it mRNA because it isn't. It is modified messenger RNA. Modified messenger RNA is dangerous. mRNA is not. mRNA is in our bodies. It's the way um, our basically proteins get made, um, transmitted from the uh, nucleus to the uh, uh, places where the protein is going to be made around the body. But modified mRNA is different. mRNA 
gets uh, digested effectively, broken down in the human body within a matter of hours. Modified mRNA does not. It has now been shown to be hanging around in cells for many months at the least. And obviously we're finding it obviously now two years down the line, it's still there. And you can do uh, uh, stains for that as well as stains for the spike protein. And then we're ending up with fairly horrendous spike protein disease or spikeopathy as the pathologists like to call it. They always like path, path added to their names. Um, but I prefer spike protein disease is obvious because it's A, it's a disease, uh, but B, it's caused by the spike protein. The spike protein is extremely damaging to the tissues of the human body, and especially the heart, which is, again, the issues about sudden death. All these young people, it's, it's affecting, is really, really serious. And when you talk to the ministers of health, they're not concerned about myocarditis affecting the youngsters because they're told that, oh, it's you're going to get more myocarditis with the infection and or it, it's mild and self-limiting. It won't, won't cause any problems, but they don't understand that based on the autoimmune effect of the spike protein, it's damaging the lining of your heart, the electrical pathways that uh, are used to make your heart contract. And as a result, when you're a teenager or a young adult, if you exert yourself, you are at serious danger of your heart having an arrhythmia. And if you don't have um, uh, an, an external defibrillator nearby, you may not recover from your acute death. Are you going to be doing um, a lot more peer review or are you going to be using this in particular um, for fraud? As I say, we're doing a lot of work with other groups as well now, um, which will be very helpful um, to uh, to get more information out because the the data, if you look at the data analysts, the people at Highwire are great, the people at Children's Health Defense are great, finance technologies with Ed Dowd is is great. Um, we our data team is good. In fact, I would say they're great because we've only got a small number of people who are doing it voluntarily, and it's not their job. Um, and they've got other jobs you know, <laughs> that they have to support their lives with. Um, so we're, do we're doing a number of um, manuscripts right now. We're writing up a number of things, looking at different aspects of the Pfizer documents, including the serious adverse events. Obviously, our reporting, we've done the, uh, the high-level stuff. We've looked into each of the system organ classes. Uh, but the top-level results, as we know, is that um, there uh, is a three-to-one three predominance of females getting serious adverse events. It's also in the younger age group. That was confirmed by the European data. So the average age of 31. 31 with a serious adverse event that doesn't go away, including strokes and all these other problems. So, you know, we, we, have, we have to have this down in scientific literature because, you know, it doesn't matter how many blogs, substacks, how many reports... Um, that get published outside of scientific journals. The only thing that matters to scientists are peer-reviewed papers. Now, that's difficult when you're coming up against a narrative, um, but we finally managed it, and 
Uh, people like Dr. Peter McCulloch are also uh, doing similar similar papers, and we're hoping that once now, well, now we've actually got some peer-reviewed uh, exposure, that um, people be more open um, to publishing our findings because it's really important. You know, science is a debate, and I'm very happy. We're very happy to debate our findings. We believe, and the attorneys believe, that there is black-letter evidence of fraud from the EUA. Um, but more peer review is very, very important. I just want to um, come back on that, Chris, because I, I think the relevance of this is is why we're here today talking, and that is Report 89, because this is a huge breakthrough, isn't it, for you, now that you've got peer-reviewed, uh, now your papers have been peer-reviewed. It, it's basically saying, you're right, we're verifying what you're saying, um, which is a phenomenal breakthrough. And I just wanted to give you the opportunity, really, to say what a huge move forward that this is. And I'm sure it must have given you and your team an enormous amount of encouragement along the way. Yes, indeed. Um, I think I partially answered your question in the, in the paragraphs leading up to your question. Um, but I, I, think, I think it's extremely important because it has changed the narrative. The fact that we have now shown that the EUA was not based on reality, that Pfizer actually hid the data from the F, or so Pfizer hid the data, I'm going to put it in air quotes, because um, really everything that Pfizer has, the FDA has. So one w could say that, um, that Pfizer hid it from the FDA, but in fact the FDA knew. Um, but at the time of the EUA, um, it wasn't wasn't sort of in the narrative, even though the evidence was there. So it it, it I'm I'm sort of lost for words that they missed this um, if they didn't question it. And I'm surprised that since the papers come out that we've had no comments from the FDA or the committees. Um, after we pointed this out to them, and we're hoping that by writing to them directly, um, that with the evidence that we have, they may actually turn around and look at what they've done and whether they'd like to um, re-evaluate the EUA and perhaps um, renege on it. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> As Cheryl always points out to everybody, is that the the information that you've received from Pfizer would have been seen by the FDA and the MHRA as well. So they knew all of this. I mean, it's no wonder that Pfizer wanted to hide this documentation for what was it, seventy five years? They were actually going to hide it for. Um, one thing that I did want to just come back on because I think it's really important when. Cheryl asked Ed about children, and you were speaking also about children. Could you just remind our audience, because you're seeing the Moderna papers now starting to come through, can you talk us through the child dose of the Moderna, the pediatric dose Moderna versus the Pfizer um, pediatric dose, and what you've seen with children in Pfizer and what you're going to probably expect with Moderna during due to the dose because the dose is extremely different, isn't it, for both brands? 
The question is, how is the biological efficacy? Because we've seen from the data that the, um, the severe adverse events are different in, in Moderna versus Pfizer. We've seen um, that the doses are significantly different of, mRNA, of modified mRNA are different between Pfizer and Moderna. Moderna being more than three times the dose of Pfizer. Um, but even so, the clinical trials and the reports on the clinical trials in the children uh, were very poorly, uh, it was a poorly done and um, a trial. And really, based on that research, the EUA should never have been extended to younger people. And my, my uh, concerns about the vaccine are period, that they should not be given to youngsters. They should not be given to six to five-year-olds. They should not be given from five to, to 11 years old. They shouldn't even be given under the age of 18. Never mind the fact that overall, we don't think they should be given at all because of the, the risks outweigh the benefits by huge amounts. And we're suffering the, the uh, consequences as a result of the, of the protein. But you're right about the, the Moderna dose for uh, the, uh, the pediatric doses are significantly higher. But until we've got the Moderna data and we can actually review that, we can't compare like with like. You know, we've got everything set up, templates set up, so that once that data comes out, we can easily compare one with another. And once we have that data, we'll be able to share it with you. Um, but at the moment, we don't. But we do know that the mRNA should not be given to children, period. And so it doesn't matter what dose, what dose is small enough, nothing. There should be zero given to children. So whatever, what, what, <laughs> however I can exclaim my exclamations could be uh, really uh, loud and boisterous. At the end of the day, it should not be given, um, period. So it, it doesn't matter what the dose is. I believe it's wrong, period. And of course, these things in the past have always been carefully reviewed, in particular for children and in particular for pregnancy. Um, and those two um, issues seem to have just been wafted through. And I think the whole thing comes down to it being rushed. Everything's rushed, so everything's got to be reviewed within this 100-day period, and they want that for every new medication that comes along. Um, you can't get a medication properly assessed in 100 days, um, and it's dangerous to do so. Um, so we've moved on to, to mentioning Moderna. Obviously, you've got the Moderna information starting to come through, and I think you've already got a couple of reports um, printed up on that. Um, Moderna is massive, isn't it? It's 4.8 million pages, I believe. It's <laughs> Does that scare you to death? I mean, are your systems now so robust because you've handled all the Pfizer uh, data to be able to handle that amount of information? The answer is yes, we're looking, we know what to look for. I mean, don't forget, we were learning on the job, um, but we know how the data gets produced. Um, we know they try and hide that data. We've learned how to overcome that. We've got tools now to, um, to help us uh, descramble their data so that we can actually assess it. We've got the templates all set up so we can literally, you know, I've, I've, I've told the teams I want, I want Pfizer in one column, I want Moderna in the other for virtually everything. Let's have a look. And as they're coming through, you know, we've, we may be able to spot something immediately um, that's different. And I think that that is the key because at the end of the day, we know 
that they're both both similar in some respects and they're different in others, but the difference is mainly in dose. So I, th- I think we'll see um, increases in severe adverse events, but whether there's any change in, in the ratios between male and female and whether there's any difference in the age range and the age median is going to be something that we have to wait for. You know, we can't comment on it just yet, but uh, as I say, the templates are there and ready for us to uh, to analyze. And I think I kind of announced that you've got your last lot of um, Pfizer information come through um, for this initial judgment. I know that you've got the under 16 information coming through with the Moderna um, uh, uh, data. Um, but um, I, I was um, talking to Amy Kelly about the module three information, the manufacturing information, which doesn't seem to be complete and it's very greatly redacted what you've actually got. Is there any move to get more of that information out? Because obviously the way that these things have been manufactured seems to be very, um, well, it's not good manufacturing practice, put it that way. Yes, Cheryl. Um, we've actually been in, in uh, discussions with Aaron Siri, who's the the attorney who was brought the foyer in the first place <clears throat> to North Texas. He's been asking us about the redacted segments, uh, and he's going to be taking that back to the judge. And hopefully the judge, who's been very uh, positive in this sort of situation, um, will help us get those unredacted because that's really, really important. Uh, but that's also the same with the foyered emails that we got between the White House and the FDA uh, uh, and the committees about um, the uh, myocarditis in particular, you know, <laughs> it proved exactly what you know my report eleven when it first came out showing myocarditis was. <clears throat> it was confirmed that they knew about it and they were spinning up how they would deal with it, how to misinform the public. I mean, it's it's the someone needs to write a book just about the cover up. Because um, the way the CDC, Rochelle Walensky in particular, working with the Biden White House, the team there, uh, to cover up the fact that there was this significant increase in myocarditis amongst people who'd received the vaccine and not as a result of COVID. Um, and they were, they were covering it up. And they were, they were developing means with big tech um, to take other people down as people who are misinform- misinformation spreaders, disinformation, et cetera, et cetera. And it's basically been a PSYOP. And, um, and I think this thing, once it's uncovered, could open people's eyes to what's, going, what's been going on. Because all we want is transparency. I mean, don't forget the issues which, which you, Cheryl, and I have had trying to get a foyer accepted by um, MHRA, because I want to know about the mentions of process too, and what happens very conveniently, oh, the two members whose emails it included have both left the MHRA, and they're huge amounts of data, and we can't possibly share these with you, um, which is not not a right in the slightest. Um, there is evidence out there, and I think the fact that they don't want to release the information is further corroboration to what the White House, what the CDC were doing back in early 2021 when myocarditis was first raised and also 
the issues of process two, because it was clear that process two gave more serious adverse events than the uh, trial drug, which was a different drug, which you've talked, I'm sure, to Josh Grotzkow for about bait and switch of process one and process two um, with the contaminated. And so all of that needs to be investigated. All of that needs to be made transparent for the public because at the moment, we are the ones who are spreading disinformation, apparently, when all we're doing is sharing uh, data that's in the Pfizer documents. Um, we have never been sued by Pfizer. No one has ever come up again and challenged any of our data because we're using Pfizer's data in their own words. And so, I mean, that's the key to what we've been doing is we've tried not to speculate. We've just brought our scientific knowledge to bear, reported the documents and what's in the documents, which the FDA did not want you to see for two generations. Think of it. 75 years is effectively two generations, and most of us will have forgotten what COVID was by then. I certainly will in two generations' time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there, Chris. But people have been listening to you and actually people have been inviting you to give evidence at COVID public inquiries. And I was delighted to see you on screen uh, in Brazil. Uh, that was just being put up online literally four days ago. Um, and as we speak, the COVID inquiry is bumbling along here in the United Kingdom. And I think Boris Johnson has just spoken um, and I have a lot to say about the COVID inquiry, but can I just ask you, have you been invited to speak at the COVID inquiry, bearing in mind that you have been speaking around the world on your findings? Um, no, on, only a certain number of doctors have. Um, what we tried to do with Cheryl's help was to get our paper about the fraudulent um, EUA to Andrew Bridgen, or at least to his staff, um, so hopefully um, he'll have taken that into account. I mean, there have been some good people that he's brought along, so I'm not overly concerned, um, but it would have been nice to be asked based on the fact that you know, we've done so much work over the last two years. We've published two books and, and peer-reviewed journals. So um, we're doing pretty good, but um, we're not high profile. I think that's, that's the key. Um, we're just working away in the background. We're quite happy to let other people um, share our information um, and if they, if they would like to. We're acting as a resource, um, but you know, there's only so much that we can do uh, as an organization. We're just volunteers, and so we have to use the, the power of social media and friends, contacts, being force multipliers to get that, that information out, even if all you're doing is you're sharing the information with your friends and neighbors. Gradually, you know, it's a bit like green fly. You have one green fly on your rose, you're not too worried about it. If you leave it for 10 minutes, you come back, the rose is covered with green fly. They're just sprouting like anything. It's like breeding like rabbits. You know, it's the same thing with this sort of information. If you get it out, a certain number of people, it will, it will, it'll ring true for them. They'll understand I mean, I've it's, it's so many. It's, I've had so many interesting discussions with just people who've been renting in our Airbnb and things like this, and and people I meet, you know, they ask what I'm doing, and and so I tell them in no uncertain terms, and ask them a question, and uh, and actually, it's surprising how open 
people are to hearing what has actually gone on, um, what damage the uh, these so-called vaccines do. And I think that's promoted the vaccine hesitancy, which is correct at this stage. Someone needs to prove to us that vaccines are safe before we're going to take any vaccines anymore. We're not, I mean, we've, we've lost trust in all the organizations that were supposed to protect us. Now, we, part of my, when my evidence of the Brazil inquiry, I was talking about the committees, the FDA committee called VRB PAC and the CDC committee called AICP. And on their website, it, you know, their first um, responsibility is to keep patients safe. Did they do that? The answer is no. Are they going to be held accountable? We hope so, and we're going to try and keep their feet to the fire. But the same with the MHRA, the e EMA, and the TGA in Australia. There are so many um, of these um, authorities who are the agencies who are overseeing big pharma in our countries that you know we need change across the world. You presumably heard about the um, legal case that's being brought um, by two um, test people um, to start off with, um, and 18 total to follow. So that's on the VITT, which, of course, is brilliant because it's vaccine-induced. The name actually tells you what it actually is. You can't get away from the fact that it's down to, to vaccine. And that um, has a basis on the PMCPA, which is the people that run the code of practice for the industry, actually saying um, that they overclaimed efficacy and also um, the safety um, claims as well. So they're going um, in the case um, on the Consumer Protection Act. It basically doesn't do what it said on the tin. You know, it, it basically is being described inaccurately, um, which is interesting. Um, the other thing that's interesting for me on that is that I analysed a speech that Dame June Rain, lesser, um, actually did in November 22. And she started talking about being aware of 300 um, thrombocytopenia patients and that they were analysing them genetically. So to actually be aware of that number, <laughs> um, but not their plight in terms of how um, tremendously difficult it is if you actually are very unlucky to have, have ended up with that um, particular condition. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's um, basically down to um, descriptions and words that are used that are, are proved to be wrong. Chris? I just want to bring you on to something that I'm sure you know about. Um, but <laughs> there's been little red flags uh, popping up in my head because you've mentioned intelligence, you've mentioned FBI, you've mentioned warp speed. And um, I came across a very interesting article, which actually we've just shown uh, on the news recently, um, from Unheard, that's U-N-H-E-R-D. The links to all that we're talking about today will be in the article beneath this interview. Um, and the article says that Moderna, they were focusing specifically on Moderna, however, I believe this has been going on also with Pfizer, um, have a disinformation unit and they have been investing an awful lot of money into what they call working with other organizations to influence vaccine policy. And they've been working with NGOs such as the WHO, 
They've been working with um, what they call global partners, and they've been listening to our social media. They've been working uh, with companies that use artificial intelligence, Blue Silk, um, which are social social media communication listening platforms. They're also working with other organisations, the Public Good Project, to monitor uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of websites over over a hundred countries, um, and they brag that they have this huge amount of data, and that because of this data, this is what's making them almost um, well unbeatable they're they're really sort of bashing their own drum about this and what i noticed was that heading this moderna disinformation unit is professor nikki rutman who was in the fbi and was operating out of the boston office during warp speed so when you mentioned warp speed and fbi all of these bells were were ringing in my head so it clearly looks now as though these pharmaceutical companies, many pharmaceutical companies, and when you go onto the website of all of these organizations they're working with, you can see it's Johnson & Johnson, it's Glaxo, it's Moderna, it's Pfizer, it's AstraZeneca, it's all of them. They're all in this tight intelligence net. So they're no longer, I mean, Moderna calls itself an mRNA company. Um, it won't even, it doesn't even want to be referred to as a, a pharmaceutical company. They want to be called an mRNA company. So now I'm seeing this huge infiltration of FBI and intelligence and millions of pounds of money being thrown at vaccine disinformation and the way that these companies now are trying to influence vaccine policy via the government and the NGOs. And so everything that you've said today makes complete sense. I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised, but Again, I think it's very relevant that Pfizer hasn't been in touch with you about your findings. I've, I find that extremely interesting. Um, but were you aware of the size of this intelligence? It's almost an intelligence industrial complex that is working within the pharmaceutical companies now. Um, you know, do you have anybody on the team that's specifically looking at the disinformation? bureau or department at Moderna and how much influence they have? First of all, you just have to remember that Moderna is the commercial arm of the bioweapons research program in the US. So they're just monetizing um, bioweapons, um, which is basically what these uh, modified mRNA um, so-called vaccines are. They're gen just genetic uh, manipulation. Um, but number two is we also know uh, and have experienced, and it's been thanks to the Twitter files being released, um, it was very clear how the White House was uh, weaponizing the Department of Justice and uh, collaborating with Big Pharma and Big Tech uh, to message. And that's um, the uh, story of Dr. Robert Malone's book, The uh, Lies My Government Told Me. And he goes into great depth on, on this. And, you know, we're all aware of PSYOPs, and it's very, very clear how it's, how it's being done. Um, but the, the real serious concern here is the use of AI. We believe AI is going to have a very important social influencing um, um, 
impact on the upcoming presidential election next year. Um, and before then, they they have to do everything they can to prevent Trump being elected again, um, because he's going to destroy the big uh, the deep state this time. Last time he was hoping to do it, but he had insiders that were basically protecting the deep state from him. Um, but at the end of the day, um, AI is far superior to us, can think quicker, and can put out um, messages on all sorts of social media and and re-quote re us, but twist it just a little bit. They can also alter our videos and make it look as though we're saying something completely different to what we are really are saying. So I think there are serious concerns about artificial intelligence and the rise of artificial general intelligence, which is so very close now. Um, are we going to be replaced? This is all science fiction coming to life in front of us. And there are so many things happening that people can be distracted just by having to pay the bills, never mind anything else, with the, uh, the price rises for food and for energy, for heating, uh, for housing, just having a roof over your head. Um, we're too busy. We're being made too busy to concentrate on the underlying issues that the, the government are trying to do behind our backs. Um, because they want to maintain control. The deep state always has to maintain control. And remember that the US and UK are very, very tight here. It came out, the, the, uh, was it the CEO of Google was interviewed last week and said how wonderful it was because he'd spoken to the, um, the, the chief of the UK and they come up with these very sensible guidelines about AI. They got, they got it, they understood um, what AI could do for them and how it was going to be introduced in the same way in the States, supported by these big tech companies. Um, because these are the guys who are really in control. This is the 1% of the 1%. You know, the rest of they're trying to get rid of the middle class. They're just trying to make us into Russian serfs uh, while they enjoy their own lifestyle. Um, but we've really got to be very super aware of the new sources that we get um, uh, and also be careful of social media because they, they like setting uh, one, one strand of the freedom movement against another. They want to sow division amongst us because if they do that, we can have our, our effectiveness uh, diminished. What we need to do is to stand up, be counted and, and, and these, as a Brit, it's really I found it quite difficult to um, to actually be forthright and say what say what I feel, even though I'm a Yorkshireman and uh, I should really do this. But we've got the British restraint restraint of staying silent, be calm, and and uh, stay strong and things and tight up a lip. And we don't always share with our friends and neighbours that we things we should do. We need to be courageous and we need to ask each other questions just to get to the bottom of things because otherwise you can easily be misled. AI is very, very clever at that. There are so many examples. I think you've had Joe Allen on um, talking about Dark Eon um, on UK Column and Artificial General Intelligence, and he goes into that sort of information in, in great depth. So, yes, we have to be exceptionally careful. Um, yes, we are aware of these, um, the collaborations 
um, with big tech and AI. And that's, that actually came out partly in the uh, FOIA emails that Amy Kelly reported on about um, the myocarditis business. That just shows you the stuff in the background. Um, but you're absolutely right in everything you've said there, Debbie. Um, and we, have to, we just have to keep our ear on the ground and do what we can. That's all we can do. Oh, I think you hit the nail on the head there too. And uh, to reiterate, Dr. James Giordano, uh, of whose videos I, I watch a lot and our audience, our regular audience and viewers will know who I'm talking about with Dr. James Giordano. Um, he has said, like you, uh, this is not science fiction. This is science fact, their science fact. Um, and I think that's what's that's what we need to be aware of. Cheryl, um, before we let Chris go, is there anything that you would like to finally ask or, or say? I'd just like to thank him and, and all his team for all the wonderful work that they've done over such a, a, a long period of time. And obviously they're prepared to keep going for um, so much longer um, to generate these reports that um, might be worrisome, but they um, spell out the facts and they make us more aware. And that's why I'm so delighted that um, he's working with us to bring this um, to the column so that we can make people more aware. Um, not to frighten them, to make them aware so that they can do something about it. Um, and that's the most important thing, um, so that there's hope. Um, and once you're aware, um, your eyes can't be closed again. Um, once you're awake, um, it makes it um, so much easier to go forward in the right direction. And I thank you, Chris, for all the help that you've been to me so far in, in trying to bring this about. And, and I would like to thank you too, Cheryl, for, for joining up and creating that bridge between uh, the clout, um, all of these wonderful researchers, the War Room and, and the UK column. And, and I think um, before I throw to you, Chris, for your last word, um, what I would like to say is for anybody that's watching that has had an injection and is worried and is scared, we are not here to frighten you. What we're here to do is to try and encourage you to seek some help if you need it. And we will provide a, a, an amazing website in the article beneath here. But before, I, but before I say too much more on that, I want to ask Chris, Chris, for people that have taken an injection or two maybe, or even had a booster and are watching now and they're worried. We're not here to worry them, are we? We're here to help them. So what would your advice be to those people that are watching now? First of all, time is a great healer. And it turns out that most of the severe adverse events, most of the longer term effects um, are at their, at their height after about two months. But after then, it gradually uh, dissipates on its own in most people. Now, there are some people where it doesn't, and this is probably where this idea of long COVID comes in. But there are things that we can do to help break down the spike protein. Uh, there are a number of companies that um, Debbie has listed on and has talked about on the UK column um, that can provide uh, their spike protein detox formulas. There's all sorts of natural um, medicines that you can use to help the body heal itself. Basically, that's what we're doing. We're helping the body heal itself. Um, the key is try not to take any more mRNA. I mean, I'm unfortunately, I had three shots myself. Um, 
and I, I wish that I didn't. Um, the fam- my family have also had the same sort of uh, issues, but we're uh, doing things like taking natokinase and vitamin D, things like this, just looking after ourselves. Uh, and I think that's all we can do. We're in full, um, full knowledge of the facts now. Um, we know what we've got to avoid, um, but everyone out there is trying to help each other, um, you know, live healthily, eat well, get sunshine while you can in Britain, um, but <laughs> you'd still need vitamin D. I need vit- needed vitamin D when I was living in Florida, so I can tell you you need vitamin D living in the UK. Certainly do. We could do with some more sunshine. And, and for people that are watching, all the links that we're talking about are going to be in the article beneath this interview. But also we now have a direct link on our front page to all of the Pfizer analysis documents. And Cheryl and Amy and everyone well, with Chris as well have all been very busy arranging this with Mike Robinson and our team um, here at UK Column. So we're going to be staying in very close contact and updating you um, as soon as news comes uh, from the analysis, especially with the Moderna documents. So I just want to throw to you, Chris, for the last word and to thank you so much, because again, to people watching, this is all being done. You're doing this in your own time for free for humanity, and we're incredibly grateful. So I'm going to throw to you for your for your last word, Chris, and our huge thanks. And also, could you tell our viewers, where can they find you? Right. Well, thank you for, for you both to uh, for inviting me back again after the last the last time I came and gave you gave some bad news. It always seems to be bad news, as you say. But at the end of the day, you know we've got we've got this far. Time is a great great healer. I think as Brits, we've got to sort of start being um, being more questioning, uh, being sure of our facts, being willing to question the narrative, um, to seek other people's opinions, and to be gentle while we're doing it, if, if possible. If you're not being attacked um, verbally or on social media, whatever, um, try and be strong, but be sure of your facts. Get to know the facts. That's the most important thing. Once you've got the facts, you're actually forewarned and you are forearmed. You're ready to go into battle um, and can help uh, change change the tide, turn the tide. You know, King Canute tried to do that back in the day. I keep using that term, back in the day, but that's what happened. He put his throne on the shore, and he was not able to hold back the tide. But you guys can, if you know the facts, and you're willing to share it in a gentle manner and be encouraging, because at the end of the day, we don't want to be subject to this sort of thing anymore. We want transparency. Ask your MPs, pressure your MPs, you know, support people like Andrew Bridgen who are looking for the truth. And thankfully, more people are beginning to turn up to his inquiries now. So, you know, your pressure is beginning to work. So I would encourage you to keep uh, pressurizing your MPs to turn up and find out what's going on. Forget about the fake COVID inquiry that's going on with Boris Johnson and co. I mean, they're just trying to cover up. They're not really looking at the, at the, at the radical problems that have caused um, us to have all these severe adverse events 
and to accept a vaccine that was never safe, was never effective, and should never have been put in the annals of public health. I mean, it's, it's a black spot uh, on the history of, of the public health industry. And I'm saddened to say that, you know, people who had lovely, lovely uh, talks every day in the morning uh, on your television, Professor John Van Tam, making lots of money now with Moderna after moving from the public health department. You know, John, you didn't do your job. John, you need to review what we found in Pfizer's own words. Just see where things have gone wrong. Open your eyes and do something about it. You may feel that you ought to resign. You may feel you want to make a public apology. But at the end of the day, things have got to change. We want to know the truth. We want transparency in medicine. We want transparency in clinical trials. We're not going to accept anything that you give to us in the future unless you prove to us that it is safe, number one. Forget about efficacy for now. We want to know it's safe. It's a public health thing. You do not give anything that is unsafe to the general public. Only if there's a balance of, of benefits against the risk that were, uh, would make it worthwhile. But you don't do that, John. You don't do that, Chris Whitty. You don't do that, all you people who, um, June Rain, etc. You need to do your job and uh, protect the people of the United Kingdom. But for the rest of you, for the watchers, keep sharing this information. Let other people know. And um, you'd be surprised at the reactions you get. You might get some really good, interesting conversations and make some firm friends for the rest of your life.